This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We look back with some sadness at last week's program where we, we, we struck out pretty hard against the mass shootings taking place in this country. But we, in doing so, are looking back at the week before at what happened in Buffalo. Imagine our dismay, and we're sure your dismay as well, to realize that it happened again just before we went on the air. In a bit of um, very dark humor, The Onion traditionally puts the same headline out every time there's a mass shooting. I don't know its exact wording, but it's along the lines of, nothing can be done, says only country where this keeps happening. If there is an addendum to last week's tragedy in Texas, I think it has to be that the notion that's being promoted by insane people, that the solution to school shootings is to arm the teachers, doesn't look very smart when you realize that down there in Texas they had a bunch of cops, I think a SWAT team, border patrol on the way, waiting outside the school rather than engage the shooter. The reasoning being, well, we could have got shot. If you got a shooter using his AR-15 and a SWAT team doesn't want to go in because they're afraid they're going to get shot, I think the, the odds are pretty good that Mr. Simmons, the math teacher, isn't going to grab the 38 out of his desk and go down the hall to engage somebody with an AR. What do you think? friend of mine, Sammy, posted a meme or reposted a meme. Once these things are put out there, everybody reposts them. But there's one I did like, which was that, how come when I go to the pharmacy, I have to show ID to buy two boxes of Sudafed because they're worried that I'm going to make meth out of it. Meanwhile, an 18-year-old can go in and buy two AR-15s and 300 rounds of ammo. Seems like a legitimate question to ask, doesn't it? Listening to some of the commentary about all of this, someone referred back to when there was that school shooting in Scotland, which I think was 20 years ago this month. There was pushback in the UK over gun restrictions. Apparently, uh, Prince Philip came forward to say, well, my goodness, if someone goes in and kills people with a a cricket bat, are we going to ban cricket bats? The commentator dredging that up said, you know, that's sort of amazingly stupid. You really, you really have a hard time killing 30 people in a short period of time with a cricket bat, although I suppose it could be done. Anyway, assault weapons, they're weapons of war. They're not weapons for protection. They're not weapons for self-defense. They're not weapons for hunting. They're weapons you use when you want to kill a lot of people in a short period of time, such as in times of war. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense to be selling these things to disturbed teenagers. And I think we better move off this topic, uh, which I'm sure, sadly, we'll, we'll return to again before too long. Let's see if we can inject some humor into this program, starting with a rather more amusing meme, which another colleague of mine posted. that went as follows. Being a little older, I'm very fortunate to have someone call and check on me every day. He's from India and is very concerned about my car warranty. And uh, let's, let's do some quotes, one or two here. Do we do this one from Lily Tomlin? I don't believe so. Well, she said at one time, I always wanted to be somebody, but I see now I should have been more specific. And the old standby from Mark Twain, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. Anyway, we were feeling a bit remiss uh, last week because we did not adequately do the advanced promotion for the possible meteor storm slated for the night of May 
30th. But you know what? We got skunked. It didn't happen. The debris from the comet 73P Swassman Walkman did not produce a meteor storm. Frankly, I just wanted to be able to say 73P Swassman Walkman. I do understand why everybody was referring it to simply as 73P. I think if your name is either Schwassman or Walkman, you just might want to consider shortening it. One thing on my bucket list would be to see an actual meteor storm. I, admittedly, there was a borderline meteor storm from the Leonid meteor shower that was in, I think, 2001, where it just achieved that level of 1,000 meteors per hour. Pretty cool thing to see. But in the past, there have been meteor storms where there were like 60 meteors per second. That's the kind of thing I want to see. Of course, they happen about once a century, so I don't know what the odds are on this. They're not good, but hope springs eternal. If you were out observing, looking for meteors the other night, I, I hope you saw a few. And th there was a, a, a minor meteor shower taking place, so the odds were you were going to see a few of them. I think I saw three. Personally, I'm grateful for the fact that uh, what saved the day somewhat was the unexpected cameo appearance of the International Space Station right before the, uh, the suspected time for the storm to begin. This very bright object came streaking across the sky. I looked up and thought, looks like a satellite. Grabbed the binoculars, took a look, didn't see any nav lights. Right after that, it got really dark, as satellites will do when they enter the Earth's shadow. The only thing I've ever seen that was that bright is the International Space Station, but I couldn't believe I was that lucky. But talking to my good friend Roger Orman, watching the meteors from his position up in Arnold, he said, no, that was the station. One thing that was spoiling the backyard observations from my position in the East Bay was the terrible light pollution. I was disgusted to look up and realize that you couldn't see most of the stars in the Little Dipper. The constellation Hercules, which is where the meteors are supposed to be originating from, was hard to pick out. The constellation of Ophiuchus, which is above Scorpio, was almost impossible to pick out. It's very, very polluted. And it didn't used to be this bad. Part of the problem is that they decide to put LEDs in because they're cheap and they're really bright. There used to be some consideration for the Lick Observatory south of San Jose. There were streetlight regulations for many years that used the type of lighting that would interfere less with astronomical observations, but that all seems to have been forgotten about. And dear listener, I don't know about you, but if you've been driving around at night lately and you see some of the headlights that are coming at you, they appear to be really bright LEDs. You have to wonder, why does people don't realize that you're blinding the other driver with such lights. This, this used to be something that was taken into account. You know, this show is starting to sound like crotchety old guy radio, isn't it? Well, all right, if we're going to be a bit peevish, let's go all the way. We're very fond of the work of Bill Maher, and he had a recent rant, I think, from this week's program on the subject of college and how it is a bit of a scam these days. And I, I think we should excerpt a bit or two from this, Mr. McMillan. 1960, colleges awarded A's to 15% of the students. Well, now it's 45%. And it's not because they got smarter. Also, colleges are businesses selling a consumer product for hundreds of thousands of dollars, and they want to give the customers what they want, a magical piece of paper called a diploma. But that's only the beginning of the scam. A wannabe librarian needs a master's degree just to get an entry-level job filing books. You know, I've heard this from so many 
nurses and teachers and administrators <clears throat> rolling their eyes when relating how they needed to take some bull course in order to advance in their field. When really they already learned what they need by working the job. But in the grift that is our higher education, when you want to move up, hold on there, not so fast, toll booth ahead, you need to pay for more education before we decide if you can do what you do. And because it's so necessary, colleges can charge whatever they want. Since 1985, the average cost of college has risen 500%. It doubles every nine years. Every year it increases at four times the rate of inflation. And yet no one knows how to change a tire. Yeah, evidently Bill Maher was um, not happy with Joe Biden's America's Family Plan asking taxpayers to pony up hundreds of billions, said Marr, for free college proposals. He noted that liberals see more school than Republicans see tax cuts as the answer to everything. But for his part, Marr suggested that um, due to their regressive nature, free college proposals contribute to income equality and other areas of concern for Democrats. Another part of the rant, he said, I know free college is a left-wing thing, but is it really liberal for someone who doesn't go to college and makes less money to pay for people who do go and make more? Anyway, we think Mr. Marr has a point. Of course, the real question here is, I think, why, why has college gone up, you know, fourfold? And the people it's turning out, those, those straight-A students, 45% of the grades being given out are A's. I'm pretty sure the low end of those A's would have had a really hard time getting a B back in 1960. But that's something of a guess on my part. Now, the truth is, an, educa an educated public is essential if you want to have a democracy. Of course, this reminds me of the old quote from Mark Twain, which is that a person who doesn't read has no advantage over the person who can't. To that, I would say that the person who's educated and how to evaluate data, which God knows, at some level, higher education should instill that in people. You'd have to say that the person who doesn't use such skills has no advantage over the person who's ignorant of them. Boy, this is cranky stuff, isn't it? But hold on, folks. We're just warming up. Someone sent out a meme last month that I've been sitting on, which is, I would like to apologize to anyone I have not offended. Please be patient. I will get to you shortly. And one thing I think we've, we've been ahead of the curve on on this program, I'd like to think so anyway, is the fact that Silicon Valley is not what we'd like it to be. It may have once been a, uh, a brilliant area of innovation. Well, it's, it's still that. It's just the problem is what these innovations are being applied to is a problem, many problems. Let's address a few of the problems. Starting with a recent op-ed piece by Paul Krugman, New York Times columnist, and, and I believe Nobel laureate in economics. Of course, we here at Radio Parallax take the position that a Nobel Prize in economics and $7 will get you a large cup of coffee at Starbucks. But said Mr. Krugman, the sultans of Silicon Valley are in a political snit, with some billionaires suddenly turning against Democrats. Now, on this program, we predicted a long time ago that Although there's this wishful thinking idea that people are progressive in Silicon Valley, that they're broad-minded, they're looking at making the world a better place, at least up until the Showtime program, Silicon Valley made such fun of the phrase making the world a better place that the word went out in numerous corporations to stop saying that. But there is a widespread notion that, you know, Silicon Valley is very progressive. 
even though when you look back, as we've done many times on this program, as to what happened in the ramp up to the 2016 election, we, we would say that, you know, if, if Mark Zuckerberg wasn't on the Trump team, he's, he's missing a paycheck because his technology, the Facebook technology, was widely employed by the Trump team, by a man named Brad Parscale, to help their efforts. Now, as pointed out in this program, the Democrats had an opportunity to use these tools, and they thought they had this stuff dialed in. They turned it down. And we're not going to rehash the whole 2016 election. I mean, there were a lot of factors involved in the unexpected Trump victory. The nation's media is certainly complicit in the fact that every time they gave Trump a microphone or would report on what he said, people were so stirred up that there was a larger audience. And larger audiences translate into more money. Anyway, back to Krugman. It's not just Elon Musk. Other prominent players, including Jeff Bezos, have lashed out at the Biden administration. But then, you know, as we report on this program, the Democrats are the ones that have been complaining about misuse of the technology. The Republicans have been completely silent on the issue. They, they've made no threats about antitrust uh, actions against big tech. Only seems to come from the Democrats. So we predicted a long time ago that there would be, you know, a more concerted effort to directly support Republicans. And notes Krugman, we now know that Oracle's Larry Ellison participated in a call with Sean Hannity and Lindsey Graham about the overturning of the 2020 election. Said Krugman, the timing of this hard right turn by some tech aristocrats is remarkable given what's happening in U.S. politics. It's hard, for example, to imagine what kind of bubble Elon Musk lives in that he could declare Democrats, quote, the party of division and hate, unquote, at a time when Tucker Carlson, not a politician, but still one of the most influential figures in modern GOP, in the modern GOP, is devoting show after show to replacement theory, the claim that liberal elites are deliberately bringing immigrants to America to displace white voters. And polls show that nearly half of Republicans agree with this theory. Later in the piece, Krugman says the tech elite had it all. Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg was for a while a feminist icon. Elon Musk has millions of Twitter followers, many of them actual human beings rather than bots. And these followers often have been ardent Tesla defenders. Now the glitter's gone. Social media, once hailed as a force for freedom, are now denounced as vectors of misinformation. A topic we need to return to. But but let's, let's back up a minute and... I was quite surprised to learn about Larry Ellison. Perhaps I shouldn't have been. But to quote from MSN.com, Larry Ellison, the billionaire co-founder and chairman of the software company Oracle and the biggest backer of Elon Musk's attempted Twitter takeover, participated in a call shortly after the 2020 election that focused on strategies of contesting the legitimacy of the vote. That's according to court documents and one of the participants. The November 14th call included... Senator Lindsey Graham, Fox News host Sean Hannity, Jay Sekulow, an attorney for President Donald Trump, and James Bopp Jr., an attorney for Trust the Vote, a Texas-based nonprofit that has promoted disputed claims of widespread election fraud. Ellison's participation illustrates a previously unknown dimension to Trump's multifaceted campaign to challenge his loss. And we would note that's an effort still coming into focus more than 18 months later. The piece notes that Larry Ellison is the 11th richest person in the world with a net worth of about $85 billion, according to the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. 
He became a major political power broker during the Trump administration, hosting the president in a 2020 fundraiser at his estate in California's Coachella Valley and contributing millions to Republican candidates and committees, including to Lindsey Graham, according to filings with the Federal Election Commission. And this gets worse, ladies and gentlemen. According to MSNBC, during the Trump administration in 2020, Oracle partnered with the Department of Health and Human Services to collect data from doctors treating coronavirus with hydroxychloroquine, which I suppose, as far as it goes, studying it was a good idea. That is the anti-malarial drug touted by the president, among other drugs, as a cure for COVID. That fall, Oracle won praise from Trump as a great company, and it became the preferred U.S. buyer of TikTok in a potential deal with the Chinese company ByteDance that actually did not come to fruition. So the 11th richest man in the world, the founder of Oracle, Larry Ellison, Silicon Valley titan, is behind Trump and behind, well, stay tuned. He was behind Trump, he's still behind Trump, and he's also lavishly funding people who are towing the Trump line. Oracle has contributed sizable sums to conservative causes, including as much as $500,000 in 2019 to the Federalist Society, the one that keeps putting those wonderful choices on our Supreme Court, and as much as the same, half a million dollars in 2021, to the Internet Accountability Project, a nonprofit that accuses major technology companies of an anti-conservative bias. Ellison personally has invested significantly in Republican candidates and causes. He hosted Trump for a fundraiser for his 2020 re-election campaign on the same day, this must be a coincidence, that the administration took Oracle's side in a high-stakes copyright dispute with Google unfolding at the Supreme Court. Now, Elon Musk, who we'll get to in a minute, as we know, has been talking about buying Twitter and has been open about the fact that he would bring Donald Trump back on to Twitter, where he's been banned since his attempted coup of the United States government in the beginning of 2021. Musk thinks that uh, Trump should be back on Twitter, and apparently he's backed in this by Larry Ellison. That's a bit of a stretch on our part, since Ellison apparently has not made a public statement asserting that, but we're going to guess that he does. Now, keep in mind, Ellison took part in a powwow with Donald Trump, and representatives of True the Vote came up with $2.5 million to support Trump's effort to overturn the election. Apparently, its main donor, a man named Fred Eshelman, got disillusioned with True the Vote, and he wanted to get his money returned. He sued the nonprofit in federal court. The case was dismissed and is now pending on appeal. Recently, True the Vote has raised its profile significantly because it has uh, supported a movie by the conservative commentator Dinesh D'Souza about widespread ballot harvesting in the 2020 election, so-called ballot harvesting. The film, 2,000 Mules, was shown at Mar-a-Lago last month and has become a focal point of ongoing efforts to deny the legitimacy of the 2020 election. I read a review of, of 2,000 Mules, and, said, and they said, well, they, they do claim, the makers of the movie, that they do have footage of people doing illegal things with, um, with ballots. They don't want to use them in the film because they weren't sure they were clear enough. Anyway, tech giant Larry Ellison is on the Republican team supporting Donald Trump. Not just the Republican team, the radical part of the Republican team that says the election was stolen. We don't know that Elon Musk has an opinion on the election being stolen, but he certainly thinks Donald Trump deserves to be given a megaphone to speak to the public with. Peter Thiel made headlines back in 2016 when he jumped onto the Trump bandwagon. He's been there ever since. For instance, Thiel 
pumped millions of dollars into the campaign of J.D. Vance, who ran for the Republican nomination for Senate in Ohio. Vance won. Thiel contributed $1.25 million openly to Trump's campaign in 2016 when he sat on the board of Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg at the time defended Thiel and his place on the company's board, saying in an internal post, we can't create a culture that says it cares about diversity and then excludes almost half the country because they back a political candidate. We quoted a piece last fall from Bloomberg Businessweek, a piece by Max Chafkin, who noted that Thiel isn't the richest tech mogul, but he's in many ways been the most influential. To conservatives, he's become like Ayn Rand crossed with one of her fictional characters, a libertarian philosopher and a builder, and his political clout as a backroom dealmaker is growing. Thiel was on Donald Trump's transition team, and Chafkin noted that his recommendations for White House appointees were often comically bad, but he wasn't playing for influence. He was playing for money and government contracts, and his company, Palantir, got many of them. In 2019, the Army chose Palantir over Raytheon for an $800 million defense contract. Despite limited experience, Palantir has even managed to get a $40 million slice of the Pentagon's high-profile Project Maven computer vision effort. I'm sure these successes had nothing to do with his support for Trump, though. So, you good people who work out in Silicon Valley for these giant corporations, would you please wake up and smell the coffee? Big tech is being used, not just in America, but all over the world to further the interests of autocrats. Let's start with Russia. Vladimir Putin has taken his case to Twitter, noted The Week magazine in its May 14th edition. Ukraine and Russia are fighting mainly in eastern Ukraine, but they are courting allies around the globe. Ukraine needs other countries to abide by Western sanctions. That means winning hearts and minds in places like India and Turkey. To Western ears, Russia's portrayal of Ukraine's leaders as Nazis sounds absurd. But just as Ukraine's military strength surprised the Kremlin, the effectiveness of Russian propaganda might also be underestimated. Analysis of recent Twitter posts suggests that Russia's online information operations may be focused outside the West and already may be bearing fruit. Anyway, The Economist evidently hired a company, an analytics firm in Britain, called CASM Technology to take a look at the various tweets. They concluded that a significant percentage were churning out pro-Russian tweets in a suspicious manner. And noted the magazine, these suspicious accounts succeeded in injecting their views into online conversations. On average, the pro-Russian messages were retweeted 61 times, and they seemed to be winning converts. Because this activity is concentrated in Asian and African online networks, it is largely invisible to Western Twitterati. We talked about an article that was in New Scientist, the March 19th edition, describing the misinformation and disinformation coming out of Russia as basically a fire hose of disinformation. You know, if you really seek disinformational monkey business, you don't have to go to Twitter accounts in Africa. You can just go to CNN here in America. On May 31st, lawyer Michael Sussman was acquitted of charges of lying to the FBI at a fall 2016 meeting where he passed along tips about Trump's ties to Russia. We would remind you that special counsel John Durham was appointed by Donald Trump to be a prosecutor hunting for wrongdoing in the Trump-Russia investigations. And what do you know? In the first pass, he's come up empty. The whole thing is a great distraction. The notion that you need to investigate the phony connections between the Trump campaign and Russia. 
Let's requote an item we cited in August of 2020, an opinion piece that appeared in the WashingtonExaminer.com, not exactly a left-wing publication. Quinn Hillier there wrote that the Republican Senate Intelligence Committee findings should settle once and for all that the FBI's investigation into the Russian meddling was not a hoax. In fact, there's so much irrefutable evidence of Russian meddling in the report, as well as contacts between the Trump campaign and Russian spies and people connected with them, that the FBI would have been derelict had it not opened an investigation. Trump fans need to get that through their heads. Well, that may be so, but CNN notes that there's limited visibility into the inner workings of the still ongoing Durham investigation. Donald Trump has claimed that the probe will vindicate his claims of Watergate-level crimes against him and his allies. After three years, Durham is nowhere near delivering on those expectations, notes CNN. Speaking of Watergate, we're keen to read the new book by Jefferson Morley, Dance of Scorpions, about the relationship between CIA head Dick Helms and President Richard Nixon. We can assure you that's going to be a barn burner and going to tell a story of Watergate you have not heard. If you can't wait till uh, we get the book and read it and report on it, you can go online and listen to the KPFK Pacifica Radio conducted by David Talbot of Jeff Morley on this topic. Gives us great pleasure at Radio Parallax to hear an interview of, of someone we've had on several times, interviewing someone else we've had on several times. Makes us feel that we're doing our job. You know what, I want to talk also about the misuse of tech in other countries, but we've got to take a break at the moment. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Got lots more. Do not go away. Just will 